Welcome back to the Around the Block podcast from Coinbase. I'm Justin Mart. And I'm Catherine Wu. And this week, we're getting into an interesting topic, privacy and the world of how privacy intersects with blockchains. Yeah. And I'm extra excited because we have on, honestly, a guest I'm so excited about, um, Jill Gunter, who's one of my really close friends, actually one of my first friends in crypto, and also just one of the most, I think, articulate people when it comes to things that she's an expert on, which is really like the intersection of crypto um, and privacy and economics and just someone that I've both been friends with and admired for a really long time. This is the time to have an articulate guest because <laughs> this topic's kind of a scary one, like like privacy and zero knowledge proof, scary words. Yeah. So I'm also excited to dive into it. Yeah. So let's get going. Awesome. One of the things in crypto that I think a lot of people outside of crypto look into find really weird is there's a big stereotype of people who work in crypto and are obsessed with crypto, which is that we're all like tin foil hat people who are really obsessed with like anarchy and going off the grid, um, which I think is rooted in some truth. But ultimately, like we were just talking about this. First of all, blockchains are so open by nature. It actually doesn't make sense if you actually want to hide anything you're doing. Um, not all of them, of course, like the Bitcoin blockchain, everything is open. Everyone's obsessed with Etherscan. So that's number one. And that's the number one thing I want to like just debunk off the bat. <laughs> um, but secondly, I do think, though, there is this interesting tension between the open nature of blockchains um, and the transactions we make on it and actually trying to preserve some layer of data protection and privacy. Yeah. So that's kind of where I just want to start. Yeah. Is, is that tension? Can, can we can we can you help us like explain this tension, right, yes. between the open nature of blockchains and like the need for privacy. Yeah, that's a great point, because privacy ultimately means so many different things in so many different contexts to everyone, uh, depending on who you're catching. And, and again, you know, in what way they are using a given application or, you know, what they're worried about in that moment. And we tend to talk about privacy as just this blanket term. And Catherine, particularly in crypto, as you're saying, privacy has come to be viewed as just this purely black and white context. Either you have it or you don't. And if you have it, then you'd better be sure that you have it against everyone ranging from government actors to your boyfriend, to, you know, your neighbor, you know, you want to be able to make the statement and the claim that you are private from all people in all ways all the time. And then on the flip side, if something is not private, then the default assumption is that it is all open to anyone who wants to look at it all the time. And that is a very kind of crypto specific framing of what privacy means. And we can get into kind of the history of this and, and how we've gotten there and sort of, you know, the technical innovations along the way that have created this black and white division. But what I think is really interesting is that, again, that's not how actually most people in the mainstream and in real life outside of crypto tend to think about privacy. We tend to think of it rather as something that, you know, we want certain things to be private from some people some of the time and other things we're comfortable sharing and, and what have you. And I think what's really exciting right now and what I think we're going to talk a lot about over the next half hour or so is how that spectrum in the middle is getting opened up in terms of what then can be disclosed sort of selectively and how privacy is not 
going to any longer be just this black and white concept. Can, can I ask the dumb clarifying question? So people that are new to crypto assume that it's private. You, you hear like, oh, Bitcoin is anonymous, right? But it's, but it's really not. So can we just actually explain a little bit about what the current state of crypto is? Mm-hmm. Is it private? Is it not? Pri- yeah. How is it not private? Yeah, well, so I, I think it's kind of funny when talking about this to go back in time a little bit and look historically at, yeah, you know, the origins of, of Bitcoin uh, going back to 2008, 2009. You know, it was framed as digital anonymous cash. There are a lot of things that that means, but in particular, we can pull out the word anonymous there. You know, what happens when you have a system where you don't necessarily have a name or personal identifying information tied to the assets that you own online um, or the transactions that you're making? You know, that was not something that was possible. We had, of course, you know, notions of online payment and online banking prior to 2008, 2009. Uh, But all of those involved intermediaries where, again, you're tying personal identifying information to it. Along comes Bitcoin. And again, it frames itself as anonymous because all you have is, you know, your wallet, which is a string of numbers, which at least at the outset, you can make the case sort of theoretically, well, this string of numbers never has to get tied back to me, Jill, and, you know, my social security number and my physical address and and all of that. And so at the beginning, it was, again, it was very easy to sort of frame Bitcoin as, oh, it's this, yeah, it's this anonymous peer-to-peer digital cash. Of course, lo and behold, what did that make a lot of people think it was good for? Buying drugs on the internet. Um, <laughs> you know, I think most people are kind of familiar anonymous, with shadowy uh, the intertwining. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The intertwining of, of Bitcoin with the Silk Road in the early days. But, you know, of course, lo and behold, the Silk Road got busted, um, as did a lot of people who were peddling drugs online in exchange for Bitcoin. And how did they get busted? It was because of this fact that actually, at the end of the day, it's not that hard in most cases to tie that string of numbers back to Jill, back to my social security number, back to my physical address, if you have sort of the right techniques of doing traffic analysis. And also if you account for the fact that at some point, probably at least today, certainly in 2021, I have probably bought Bitcoin from an exchange that does have my name and address and all of that on file. So under-discussed because there's so many headlines that's like, oh, so-and-so like hacked, you know, this company or this person is demanding ransom in, in the form of Bitcoin. And they actually almost always get busted. And then when they do get busted, it's like, oh, my God, how did they know? <laughs> and it's like, well, if you actually knew how the Bitcoin blockchain worked, you that's not surprising, literally yeah. at all. So there's really there's like a sense of privacy because, again, it's a string of numbers that your address is and that these transactions are. But people with the technology and the tools and the sophistication can kind of pierce through that veil and figure it out. So it's not very private, right? It's not very private. But at the same time, you know, I think if we were um, now understanding the open nature of blockchains, if we were to bring a semblance of privacy and data control into blockchain, what is what does that actually look like? What are some of the innovations that are happening right now, Joe? Again, just sort of going back chronologically, if you look at the first few uh, innovations that came along that offered a notion of privacy in conjunction with these open blockchain systems. You know, you can point to Zcash and uh, and Monero, um, which are branded as privacy coins, rightly so, because they guarantee some level 
of privacy. And specifically what that means is, you know, if you look at the way that blockchains work, part of the way that they have worked in general, looking at Bitcoin um, as kind of the, the first and the best example of this, is they work because they broadcast transactions to the world at large, right, to the general public. And that's, you know, that's a part of how the sort of consensus mechanism works. That's a part of how you can have a decentralized system that all stays on the same page about who owns what and who owes what to whom and whatever. And so what needed to be done was, you know, we needed a way of reconciling the fact that we needed an open broadcast system that at the same time did not actually share all of the details about what was true about the state of the world as it exists within this blockchain ledger. And so that, um, you know, to kind of at a high level is what Zcash and Monero came along and to a large extent have solved. Now, Zcash and Monero, though it's worth noting, very much fall into that category on kind of the, the black and white spectrum that I, mm-hmm. I laid out earlier of coins that are aspiring to have all things be private to all people all the time. And so while I think it's important that they have opened up that optionality, I think that there's a lot more innovation that's going to come down the pipeline and happen, again, sort of all along that spectrum of what people may want to have private and not. Yeah, I think we're excited about the innovation you mentioned. What are the innovative things around privacy that are happening? I see two directions we can go from here, right? We can go into how are we achieving privacy, or we can talk high level on why privacy matters. Which one do you want to tackle first? <laughs> I think... Choose your own I, I adventure. Always, yeah. yeah, seriously, I love this. I always am a fan of tackling why it matters first, because I think that um, I think that so often in crypto, so much of the technology is sort of like mind-blowing and moon-mathy and whatever. It can be fun to just end up down those rabbit holes, but then we lose all sense of like, wait, why does anyone care? Why does anyone want this? Solutions so without a problem. Yes, with, exactly. <laughs> yeah, let's start with the hard part first, which is why does anyone care? So to to dive into that a little bit, I mean, you know, you can think of good reasons why people would have cared in the first place about Zcash and Monero coming along. Um, And that doesn't just have to do with certain some of the illicit use cases that we alluded to earlier, although those may be also in that category. But, you know, you can think of a lot of the other sort of canonical use cases of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that have been talked about since they've existed, you know, things like, um, you know, government sort of resistant payments mechanisms and forms of asset ownership. If you think about refugees uh, who may maybe have spoken out against their government, you know, crossing borders and wanting to take their assets with them, you know, use cases like this that I think for so many of us in the crypto space, long been sort of the aspirational, like what we're really passionate about seeing this technology used for, there you may actually really want resistance and, and mm. you know, privacy when it comes to even government actors. And so, you know, you can think of those as important examples of, of why something like Zcash and Monero would matter. Real quick, would it be fair to say that, like, yeah. if you don't have privacy, you lose an important tool that might be helpful or valuable in, in fighting against oppression or, you know, some, you know, oppressive government, something else. So, so it's a very important tool for humanity to have. If we don't have privacy... We lose that tool. Yes, super lofty. To bring it down to earth just a second, I think ultimately what Jill, and correct me if I'm interpreting this wrong, but ultimately privacy is actually around control and it's about your personal control of your personal assets and your personal data, 
right? So, for example, certain countries where women can't open bank accounts without a man, um, you don't have to opt into that, right? So, I think ultimately it's about control. Um, again, what you both what you have, and that can exist in the ether, which is more like about your data and things that you can't really touch, and and what's really there, which is like you know cold hard cash in a bank account. Um, so so that, and then also like what you could get access into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that that's spot on, and it is important to note, Catherine, as you put it, like what we're talking about right now is very lofty. I want to yes. be clear that <laughs> these are not necessarily ways that these are being used at scale today, but I think that. For me, anyway, one of the really cool and important things about cryptocurrency in general is that it opens up optionality for people who would not otherwise perhaps have access to those options. If you look at a business, though, perhaps wanting to pay a contractor or a supplier in particular if they're trying to make this payment cross-border, Again, I've heard from many businesses that they would like to explore using stable coins for that. But one of the big issues that they'll face is that suddenly that transaction will be on chain Mm -hmm. and available for anyone, including their competitors in business, to come in and audit and view and see, well, oh, okay, it looks like you know, I can kind of back into it and say, it looks like this company is paying this supplier this much so I can back into certain things about what that means for their business. And so I think that that is an example kind of in the middle of the spectrum here where like privacy is important. It doesn't need to be privacy from the government, but, you know, it's not acceptable to just have this sort of default of blockchain transparency that we have today. I just wanted to note, we've actually seen this happen in crypto, right? So it's not private today. And there have been a couple instances where large, well-known crypto VC firms have went out and procured assets, but because their blockchain address is known to the public, mm-hmm. the public caught wind of their investment before they wanted to disclose it. Um, it also leads to weird scenarios where people can actually send funds to a VC's address and make it look like they invested, <laughs> right? So there's a weird totally. games going on because totally. it's not private, right? So yeah, it's very, very impacting. No, spot on. And I mean, we've seen that. uh, And I think that that what you just described actually is probably the most immediate use case of uh, investors funds, you know, specifically institutional funds that are already in crypto, having to deal with these scenarios of themselves, you know, sort of leaking alpha or you know, <laughs> accidentally inadvertently disclosing uh, what they're doing and, and their investment strategy, sort of showing their poker hand to the world before they wanted to, or perhaps they never wanted to in the first place. And then I also love that example of, um, you know, the airdrop problem, <laughs> basically, of, of it, uh, you know, being made to look like the investor is investing in it. I think similarly, you can point to things like, um, you know, the the airdrops to a uh, figure like Vitalik Buterin as mm-hmm. well, right? Shiba, Where, yeah. yeah. Was it, yeah, was it Shiba? It was Shiba, this, exactly. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> and didn't, didn't he end up basically attempting to liquidate all of it and donating it yes. to... Yeah, the quick story, right, yeah. Causes. When Shiba was created, yeah. the creator sent, I think, half of the entire Shiba supply to Vitalik. <laughs> and it was, like, well known that it was, like, oh, an airdrop to, to Vitalik. They just wanted his name associated with the project. They wanted him to get excited about it. And his address is known, He had, but he, he had no say in this. He, he was just a bystander to this transaction. He had no, you know, he didn't comply. He didn't agree to this for this to happen. And so, of course, when Shiba blew up and there's all this fervor around it, he decided to liquidate it and then ended up donating a lot of it as well mm-hmm. as a way of washing his hands of the project. Mm-hmm. But the entire point remains, you know, that address is known. It's public. People can yeah. take advantage of but, that. But just to reel it back in for a second, 
I don't think it's ever possible to technically stop someone from depositing something to another person's address, right? So, and I don't necessarily think that that's what we're trying to stop anyway. I think what we're more trying to stop, again, goes back to this idea of like controlling what you want or not want to share. Incomes, what I wanted to talk to about today in detail, which is the invention of zero knowledge proofs. So <laughs> let's let's not be scared survives. of that yeah, word. Yeah. Let's just let's <laughs> dig into it. The solutions. Um, the solutions, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, getting into kind of how any of this is made possible in terms of keeping things private and yet still being able to have this open blockchain ledger and so forth. Exactly, Catherine. Uh, we can dive into <laughs> zero knowledge proofs here. Um, and so what zero knowledge proofs essentially are is they allow someone to prove that they know something without actually giving up the information that they know. In this case, what we're talking about is proving that the state of the blockchain ledger is true and works out and makes sense. And I own the assets that I say I do. And Catherine can spend the assets that you know she says that she can spend and so forth without disclosing actually what all of that underlying information is. And so that's that's one of the foundational technologies, yeah, that's being used in a lot of these applications. My my like <clears throat> my like nerdy side lights up this topic because I think it's black magic. <laughs> it's super cool. And like, you know, there's like a lot of math involved. So I'm like all about this, right? Totally. Um, but I also feel like, boy, is it really challenging to understand the nuts and bolts. I love the way you explained it though, right? It's a way to kind of prove the correctness of a system without revealing any anything about the system, right? And blockchains have this unique challenge. Like we have to make sure that anybody can participate in the blockchain. It's a mm -hmm. decentralized system. Nobody controls it. So everybody has to independently verify the truth of the system. But how can you do that while retaining privacy? Because to know the truth of the system, you have to kind of have all the inputs. You have to know what the math is you have to look at the math yourself. And so this black box zero knowledge proof thing is this fancy way to do that with a bunch of trickery and advanced math, right? So again, I love it. Yeah, um, the very rough version I boil it down to is just like, you know how there's a saying where you're like, you never trust someone who just tells you, hey, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> but this kind of take the guesswork out of the people who say trust me because you can actually, well, this is obviously the high level stuff, but through zero knowledge proofs technically prove that the person that's saying trust me can actually be trusted. Yeah, fancy math, right? Fancy Black box. Math. Yeah, exactly. It comes back to that classic uh, phrasing cryptocurrency and security in general, don't trust verify. Yeah. And yeah, this is just taking it to... The next I level. thought it'd be fun too, by the way, um, if we actually like tried to use an analogy to explain zero knowledge proofs. There are a couple of famous ones out there. I don't know if you have any in your back pocket or if you want me to try it, but like, is there an analogy that you love? Go for it. Yeah, you I, want me to try it? Okay. I usually, yeah, I usually use the uh, the like multicolored like marble. Mm. Oh my God, <laughs> Justin was trying to explain it to me in the car. He was trying. <laughs> it was a terrible explanation. I butchered it. No. <laughs> Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Let's no, go. I think you got it now. I think you I got, got it now. now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think well, the 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 uh, assumption was a little bit off, but I yeah. think we worked through it because I okay. got it at the end. Well, do you want to do the, the ball one or the Waldo one? No, no, do the ball one. The ball go one? with that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Right. So, so he, here's the way that you can actually kind of explain a zero knowledge system to somebody, right? So, Jill, we're going to pretend that you're colorblind, and I'm not. Indeed. And there, yeah. there are two identical balls that are actually different colors, but you don't know this. So to you, the balls just look gray and blamp. And I tell you, hey, Jill, I can distinguish between these balls. They are, in fact, different colors. And you being- And I'm like, no way. Yeah, you're yeah, skeptical. No you way. don't trust me. Like, who trusts me anyway, right? right. So, <laughs> so I need to prove to you that they actually are distinguishable, okay? How do I do that? Well, the game that we would play is you would take both of those balls, label them A and B, ball A, ball B, put them behind your back, and then you decide to reveal one ball either ball A or ball B. And and you can switch them up in your hands, right? So, you know, I can't tell by which hand you, you bring out which ball it is. 
And you bring it out, and I can tell which it is because they're actually different colors. So I predict accurately, oh, that's ball A, right? And in your head, you're going, okay, he's right, but maybe he's just lucky. So we repeat that game, I don't know, 10, 20, 100, 1,000 times. And if I'm right every single time, the probability that I'm just getting lucky every time vanishingly goes to zero, right? And so you can be, at that point, you know for sure, yes, Justin can tell the difference between these two balls. Mm -hmm. You learned something about the state of that system that you didn't know before. Even though you don't, you do not know anything about each particular ball. You've learned nothing about which ball is actually a different color. So it's zero knowledge in the sense that you don't know anything about each ball, mm -hmm. but you you were proved that they are differentiated. They do have different colors. Spot on. I think that that was so well done. <laughs> Did I do nice, it? Nice, <laughs> nice. I'm glad we ran through this in the, yeah, in the car on the way session. here, though. <laughs> yeah. um, that was great. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is it is a dicey thing to, to try to explain. And I do think that for that reason, zero knowledge proofs specifically are very rife for misunderstanding <laughs> and sort of, you know, misapplication. And, you know, I'm dreading the day when consultants everywhere writing reports <laughs> about how zero knowledge proofs are going to solve climate change and things like that. Uh, they might but be already. I don't know. I think that we need... <laughs> We need more examples of yeah. these types of explanations on the record because I think you nailed it. So theoretically, there are probably a lot of applications that we can then extend this technology to, right? The one where, you know, Jill mentioned earlier about like maybe businesses not really wanting to quote unquote leak alpha. Yeah, like I think there are so many other ways it can get applied to. We need we need the actual participants in the blockchain to verify mathematically the correctness of that system. We need to make a statement hey, the blockchain is correct. The math has been followed correctly. Usually, you have to actually show the math. But using zero-knowledge proofs, we have a way of pr proving the statement is correct without revealing the math. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit hand-wavy still because we're not talking about how the math actually works, mm -hmm. but we're showing that this is a method by which we can prove the correctness of a system or make any sort of, probably any sort of general statement and prove that it's correct through magic math. It's like a little bit of, sta it's a bit of standardized testing. Like math, multiple choice on the SAT, right? Yeah. Like I just need to fill in the bubble that shows the answer. I didn't need to show you my work, but that like gives me a score that tells, tells that you way. how much, tells the yeah. college admissions panel how much I know about algebra. Yeah. You know, one application of this that I think is kind of a confluence of themes that we're seeing emerging in crypto and Web3 and all of that is the application of all of this to basically identity, credentials, you know, kind of identifying standards and so forth. Where, you know, if you think about it today, one of the big problems with the decentralized finance ecosystem, with all of these lending protocols that exist out there, is they're all very capital inefficient because there is no notion of credit scoring that exists mm. on the blockchain. Now, there's probably lots of good reasons why that has not come to fruition yet, although there are a bunch of projects obviously working on it. Um, but certainly one of them is that, you know, I don't I don't really want my credit score to be attested like in some public manner, uh, you know, on on a blockchain system. Um, but what I would love is within the parameters of this peer to peer decentralized system to be able to prove certain things about my credit score to be able to take out a loan that is more capital efficient um, from one of these protocols and then be on my merry way and to be able to then continue to build up that credit and that credit score. But again, only to be able to prove certain things about it to counterparties without necessarily having to 
reveal anything else about myself. Again, crypto to me comes back to creating optionality for people. And there are people and users, not least of all, you know, a lot of institutional uh, funds and, and also businesses who do want to operate within, you know, sort of a KYC pool of, of liquidity and, and users. And so, again, I think that that's one interesting way to think about how can we minimize the amount of data that has to get disclosed and held by people all over the place um, while also enabling some of those use cases? Yeah. One of the really um, cool ways to frame it, at least the way that I've been framing it, is like a lot of people refer to Bitcoin as programmable money. And I kind of think about the breakthroughs that have been achieved around zero knowledge proofs as enabling programmable privacy. Ooh, interesting. Totally. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that phrasing. And I think yeah. like in the next five to 10 years, and I know, Jill, you're super bullish on this. Basically, we'll be talking about applications of zero knowledge proofs in probably all sorts of different kind of blockchain based applications. Yeah, yeah. This is something I wanted to mention too. I love the idea of programmable privacy. Yeah. I've never heard that before, yeah. but it actually I don't think, it makes no, sense. No, if I can take credit for it because I get confused where what I read and got sunk into my mind and what I came I'm up. I'm going to give you credit. We're going to give you credit. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm going to. I'm going to point back to this podcast five years from now. <laughs> like you heard it first here. Hey, wait, wait, wait. It was all <laughs> live you. on air, or at least the first person yeah. to take credit for it. <laughs> but I, I do want to. I do want to return to it quick because um, I, I think my framing was like, oh, this is a new, just primitive that you know, a new technology that we now have at our disposal where, yeah, blockchains pioneered this idea of decentralized money, mm -hmm. you know, programmable, you know, whatever you want to call it, right? This is programmable privacy. Interesting. And the use cases here, what about gaming? Like a whole subset of gaming could be unlocked if you have this idea of, of zero knowledge proofs of privacy somewhere in that stack. I don't really know what it looks like, but I get a sense that the design space is very large, which might be what you're hinting at, totally. that the design space in mm -hmm. privacy is very large. So I wonder what your perspective is on that. Yeah, no, I think that the design space is huge. I'm going to defer back to you on gaming specifically since the extent <laughs> yeah, of my of gaming career. Yeah, the, the extent of my gaming career was basically like Mario Kart on Nintendo 64. Mm, so I'm, again, I'm going to pass that buck back to you. But you think about like what the implications of this could be for, you know, these other applications that we see emerging in Web3, whether it's DAOs, you know, Catherine, you alluded earlier to like income and payrolls, and, like, you know, if if indeed this is the future of work where everyone is working for DAOs and that's a non-trivial portion of what they're making every year, like they don't necessarily want all of their grants and so forth to be publicly disclosed to everyone on chain. There comes to be some really interesting kind of design space within that, even when it comes to voting um, and thinking about, you know, what you want to be proven uh, as as real and factual, but what you maybe also don't want to disclose the details of to the general public around DAO voting and governance. There are some really interesting things there. Uh, and then also in the NFT space, I mean, you can't, I feel like you can't have a crypto podcast right now and not talk about <laughs> NFTs at some point. It's true. But, we talked about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you hear from people all the time about the, the games that get played even within the NFT world, right, of the sort of wash trading that may or may not be going on. I've heard from NFT artists who want to be able to gift their NFTs or sell them to others at sort of below market rates, um, but are hesitant to in case they then, you know, collapse the floor price on the NFT since this is all, uh, you know, happening again transparently on chain and so forth. And so, yeah, there 
comes to be a lot of really kind of interesting things that you can think about doing. You could think about, for example, with NFTs, you could think about a world in which maybe the artist retains the ability to see who owns their NFTs and, you know, where they've moved over time and so forth. But maybe nobody else in the world can see that, you know, maybe that's sort of the privileged artist view. And uh, again, you know, to your point around the design space, that is what I am most excited about in all of this is I think that just the realm of possibility gets opened up in this really new way. But I'm going to pass it back to you because I want to hear on yeah. a gaming front <laughs> what you have in mind. But I mean, I think it goes back to the idea that, you know, again, these what, what I what first got me excited about Bitcoin, by the way, wasn't necessarily digital money. It was the idea that it's programmable money. And I was always drawn to the aspect yeah. that, oh, my gosh, the programmable side of things is an order of magnitude more exciting than just the one application because so many more things are going to come from that. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing it happen. Ethereum is a smart contract platform. Now we have programmable privacy. What does that mean? I don't really know. We have one glimmer with Dark Forest and gaming, but this is a brand new Lego piece that everybody can use to build in new game mechanics, new use cases in finance, you know, pick your poison, right? So mm -hmm. probably a very large emerging field that we're going to see come about over the next couple of years. And it's, it's easy to kind of run amok with all of the exciting possibilities, and then you have to come back to kind of the reality <laughs> of what's actually possible today. But it does remind me a lot of the early days of Ethereum, right? When you first started hearing about this world computer, you know, what does it mean that we're going to have these, you know, programmable assets and all of these new primitives on this blockchain and whatnot. And even in the early days, you know, going back to 2015, 2016, you had people imagining up things like DAOs, things like ICOs, which were maybe not called that quite at the time, um, but very rapidly evolved into that. And I think that that is that has always been the most fun part to me of working in this industry is just the way that creativity and kind of galaxy brain thinking gets rewarded when you're talking about these new design spaces. And so it's that sort of parallel that has me very optimistic about this new design space being opened up here by so many projects working on it. When you start to see something congregate around either a breakthrough technology or something uh, like we're doing right now, we're just like, oh my gosh, now that this is feasible and actually technically possible, where else can we go from there? And I think in the next five years, maybe 10 years, we'll see all of the things that we're talking about in hypothetical actually come into practice. And that's Absolutely. what I'm really excited to see. If somebody wants to get involved more in the privacy space and the zero knowledge space, um, how can they do that? What's what's your suggestions? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, first of all, start following the projects that are out there working on this. Again, you have kind of the OG projects like Zcash and Monero, and then you have a whole plethora of new projects out there. Things like Ironfish, Penumbra, uh, Secret Network, um, Alio, just tons of projects that are working on this space. And I think that's one of the most exciting things to me is it's this huge opportunity, this huge design space, and you have so many different projects just starting to work on it uh, from all of these different angles. So start following them, join their discords, you know, read the content that they're putting out. Um, and uh, yeah, I've, I've also put out a little bit of content on this myself. I did a newsletter um, on the not boring newsletter a few months back, just called Zero Knowledge. You can you can Google that. So uh, awesome. lots more to be had there. Thank you so much, Jill, for your time today. This was so fun. Yeah. This was honestly like one yeah. of the best 
Well, I can't say that. But this is one of my <laughs> my personal favorite discussions. You got a favorite child? Really? You have a favorite child? Okay. <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. This is my personal favorite discussion. Ooh, think of all the other guests. No. Wow. <laughs> Just kidding. This is great, guys. Thank you so much. What an amazing conversation. I love that. I mean, Jill's the best. I said that in the beginning. You said it. You were correct. Yeah. <laughs> Very articulate. Knows a lot about the space. Yeah. Um, I think for me, the takeaway was the world of privacy isn't just about keeping your financial data private. Mm-hmm. It's a whole universe. It's programmable privacy. We've said that like 20 times, but it's <laughs> it's a great way to put it. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a whole universe coming out. Um, I'm super excited to see what's going to get built in the next, call it two to five years. Yeah. And I what think that the potential like. that zero knowledge proofs can really unleash is ways we can't even imagine today. Yeah. Well, I hope you guys found it enlightening too. Did we ask all the right questions? Are you curious about something? Hit us back, comment at us, um, and be sure to listen to us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and also YouTube. We also have a landing page at uh, coinbase.com slash around the block where we also have long-form research, sometimes related to the topics that we discuss on the podcast. So make sure to check that out. And hit us back next week for more. Today's conversation is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice. Actual results may vary materially from any forward-looking statements made and are subject to risks and uncertainties. 